Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Richard Osijo, a host on New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And this interview is being done in partnership with the Community and Urban Sociology section of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. Joining me today is Eva Rosen, assistant professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. And she's going to talk about her recent book, The Voucher Promise, Section 8 and the Fate of an American Neighborhood, which came out last year through Princeton University Press. It's an ethnography of the social relations and consequences of a housing policy meant to both house the poor and offer poor renters housing options. Uh, Eva, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me here, Richard. It's great to be here. Great. So I was wondering if you could start by just telling us briefly about your background and how you came to work on this project and write this book. Sure. So um, I've been studying housing for a little while now, um, and I started this book, the research for this book, as part of my dissertation research back when I was a grad student. Um, I initially came to the topic doing research with a with a professor when I was grad a grad student. We were we were doing a qualitative follow up to the moving to opportunity study, big housing experiment um, in the United States, and that took me to Baltimore for the first time. Um, and so I got to know Baltimore, which was a city that was that was really different from cities I had spent a lot of time in. I was living in Boston, and I had lived in New York, and um, and so seeing you know, a shrinking Rust Belt city, which, um, you know, I now know is, is sort of an archetypal city in, in this country. And, and I've now spent a ton of time in, in Baltimore and in Cleveland and in um, Pittsburgh and other kinds of cities that, that have some similarities. Um, but at the time, I, I didn't know a lot about Baltimore and I, and I didn't know a lot about that, that kind of city. And so I was very struck by um, by the housing and um, and the vacancies, um, 
which looked really different from cities like, like Boston and New York. Um, so I, I got really interested in housing and I got really interested in the, in the transition from public housing um, where, where folks are given subsidies, they don't have a lot of choice in where they end up. Um, you see a lot of, a lot of crumbling infrastructure and high rise public housing towers, um, to the system that we've really transitioned to where we, where we offer people a more flexible kind of subsidy. It's, they say it's tenant based. So tenants can actually take that subsidy with them wherever they go. So I got really interested in thinking about the transition that was happening in cities um, in the second half of the 20th century um, and how that was related to public housing assistance and how housing more broadly was related to all kinds of outcomes that urban sociologists are interested in, right? So housing matters for poverty, it matters for inequality and health outcomes. Um, it, it affects what kinds of access you have to jobs. Um, and stable housing is really just at the root of so many different things. Um, but we sometimes don't talk about it. You know, we, we talk about schools, we talk about employment, but we don't necessarily talk about um, the underlying housing situation that folks are in. And of course, we have no right to housing in this country. And we have a huge affordable housing crisis. In fact, some people say it's not a crisis, right? It's just a long-standing situation in which in which we've never really devoted the resources that we need to um, to provide housing for people who need it at a at a cost that they can afford. Um, so, broadly speaking, that's that's how I became interested in uh, in thinking about um, housing assistance and the role that housing plays in all kinds of social outcomes. Cool. Thank you for that. So let's launch right into it. Uh, you start the book by telling us about a woman named Vivian, and she's the first of many low-income renters that we meet in the book. And Vivian is a native Baltimorean who gets a housing choice voucher, giving her her first chance to decide where to live. But despite having the opportunity to move to a wide range of neighborhoods, she ends up in a place called Park Heights, which is an impoverished neighborhood with a high crime rate. And as you show, she's not distinct nationally. Voucher holders across the country tend to move to these types of neighborhoods despite having the choice to move to many other ones, which of course begs the questions that you ask here, why do they do so? And what are their experiences in the neighborhoods they end up in? So to put these central questions in some context, could you please just tell us a bit about the history of this housing policy, this transition that you talked about earlier, what what it is and how it came about and what the program's national landscape looks like? Yeah, for sure. So, so for a long time, um, since, you know, the Great Depression, really, we have provided most of our housing assistance um, in the form of public housing. And again, that means um, a building in a fixed location where folks don't have a lot of choice in, in where they end up. And the problem with public housing, I think most people at this point would agree, is that we just never really funded public housing in a way that would allow it to be properly maintained um, so that it would be safe and, and, you know, really provide stable homes for folks. Um, and on top of that, um, it's sort of completely inextricable from the history of racial inequality and racial segregation in this country. So most of public housing was segregated. There were buildings for whites and buildings for blacks. And you can imagine how the funding streams look differently for those two types of buildings. 
Um, and so by the, you know, fast forward many, many years, skipping over a huge history, by the time we get to the 90s, there's sort of a broad recognition among policymakers and um, politicians that that public housing is failing in many ways. It's unsafe. Um, you know, there's sort of horror stories coming out of cities like Chicago and Baltimore and Atlanta of elevators that didn't work, that were never designed well in the first place, right? They only stopped on every other floor or stairwells that had no windows and the lights were broken or, um, you know, courtyards in which gangs had sort of taken over and it was gang territory. And so families couldn't walk from one building to the next where their friends or family might live to, to go get a cup of sugar. Um, and so there was sort of a broad recognition that, um, that, that something had to be done. And, um, so the voucher program pre-existed um, this recognition in the 90s. The voucher program um, came to be in the 70s, and it was really thought to be sort of an economically efficient tool to house the poor. So instead of spending a ton of government money to build housing and maintain it, the idea was that, hey, we could just use housing that already exists in the private housing market, and we could sort of pay landlords, um, private landlords, to help administer and maintain that housing stock. And it provides some flexibility and sort of capitalizes on, on a pre-existing system. And so in theory, um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and on top of that, it, it means that um, families aren't forced into living in the kinds of uh, impoverished, disadvantaged, uh, in many cases, segregated neighborhoods in which public housing was very purposefully built, right? It was built in neighborhoods that developers didn't want for other reasons. Um, and so it was sort of thought of as a, as a way out. Um, so, it, you know, I talk a lot in the book about these sort of tool, uh, dual goals of the program. And on the one hand, right, very basically the voucher program is meant to provide stable homes for the poor. It's meant as an anti-poverty tool. It's meant to help people afford um, their homes. And in in some ways it, it does that quite well. And the quantitative research really shows that. And, and I have a lot of stories in my book about um, uh, how well the voucher program does that. You brought up Vivian. Vivian's a great example. Um, you know, Vivian, like many people, felt like she won the lottery when she got her voucher. And and actually, it's not that far from the truth because the voucher program is um, administered through a lottery. There are different kinds of preference categories for certain kinds of groups in need. But um, at the end of the day, it's administered by a lottery because there are far more people who need it than actually get it. Only about... Um, only about one in four renters who needs housing assistance actually gets it in the form of public housing or vouchers. So, um, so there's that one goal on the on the first hand, right, that vouchers have, which is simply to house the the poor, to be an anti-poverty tool, to promote housing stability, and it appears to do that quite well. It reduces homelessness, it reduces overcrowding and doubling up, um, and it and it helps people afford their homes quite simply. The the biggest thing that that families report spending more money on after get, they get a voucher is food. Um, it's 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 really quite simple. Um, but there is this sort of second competing goal, and it's never been an official goal of the voucher program. But when you think about this broader history that that you asked me about, that we've been talking about um, coming out of the history of public housing, 
um, what you see is that vouchers have the potential, right, to allow families to move to neighborhoods that are unlike the ones they lived in in public housing. So those neighborhoods tended to have very few jobs. They were often quite socially isolated. They were racially segregated, as I mentioned. Whereas vouchers offer the opportunity to make a choice, right? In theory, you can rent a home anywhere that is affordable, anywhere that's under a certain threshold, um, and anywhere you want, anywhere you want to live. So there's sort of a, a growing literature on um, on where voucher holders do end up, and um, and the literature sort of says, well, on average, you know, we see voucher holders living in neighborhoods that are less poor and less segregated than the kinds of neighborhoods that they would have lived in if they were still in public housing. And and I should say that public housing, of course, still exists. It's just been downsized quite a bit, um, and so there are now more families that are helped through vouchers than through public housing. Um, so, so we see that families are doing better than they were in public housing, but we also see that simultaneously, they're just, they're not doing as well as we might have expected. And again, that's sort of a tricky goal because it's not as if, um, mobility, right? The, the idea that families would, um, attain higher income neighborhoods or more racially integrated neighborhoods or neighborhoods with more jobs or more parks. It's not as if that idea was written into the, the, the official goals of the voucher program, but it really has come to be something that policymakers have hoped for. And again, when you think about it in the context of this history, it certainly has that potential, right? Um, and, so, and so one of the big questions that's really not answered in the literature um, is not just um, whether we see better neighborhood outcomes for people or whether we see um, that vouchers really help them to afford their rent. But how do people think about that decision? What does it mean to them to receive a voucher? Um, how do we think about what choice looks like within a certain set of constraints, right? So it's not just a question of a family receiving a voucher and picking whatever house they want to live in. There's all kinds of constraints that the private market imposes, right, that exist in the regular old rental housing market that therefore also exist in the voucher uh, rental market and may exist um, in an even more exaggerated way because there may be certain kinds of stigma attached um, to to having a voucher. So that was one of the things that I was really interested in looking at. Well, thank you. This is a it's a fascinating history and you shed a lot of light on this policy that I think a lot of people are going to learn much from. So to then study these problems, you moved into Park Heights, this neighborhood in Baltimore that faced that almost this, uh, that 20th century narrative of the steep decline because of deindustrialization, racialized disinvestment and racist housing policies and practices. So give us a bit of this history of the neighborhood and how those processes have shaped Park Heights today. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the the folks who moved to Park Heights um, in the 60s and 70s who were sort of the aging homeowners that I met when, when I arrived there um, were largely African-American. The neighborhood today is over 95 percent black. Um, and these homeowners in particular who settled in the neighborhood um, in the 60s and 70s, um, many of them had jobs at Bethlehem Steel, so they were absolutely a part of this um, of this story of of 
American cities and American neighborhoods where, um, you know, they were really working class, aspiring middle class. They had steady jobs um, and they were able for the first time in their lives to own homes. Many of them um, migrated from the South as children in the Great Migration um, or their parents had done so. Um, and they uh, had been barred from living in neighborhoods like Park Heights until the 60s and 70s because of um, because of you know racist lending practices. Um, they had been barred from owning homes almost anywhere because of redlining. Um, and so what we see in the 60s and 70s is that neighborhoods like Park Heights for the first time begin opening up to families like this. Um, and Park Heights was a neighborhood that was predominantly Jewish. It was over 95% white until the late 1960s. Um, and what we saw happening in Park Heights was blockbusting. And a lot of people credit Baltimore as the birthplace of blockbusting. It's not a very, um, not a very illustrious reputation, but um, blockbusting is where real estate agents would uh, come in and sort of knock on doors and kind of stoke fears among black homeowner, among white homeowners that um, that black homeowners might be coming in or that black renters might be coming in either way. And so what they did was they basically, you know, knocked on the door and said, "Hey, did you notice?" This neighborhood is changing. If you don't sell now, um, you're gonna you're gonna really lose a lot of money. And so they would buy homes from white families at low prices and resell them to black families at very high prices. And what you see in this neighborhood, if you look at the census records, is that in a matter of under 10 years, something like seven years, the entire neighborhood flips from 95% white to 95% black. And so when I came to the neighborhood and in the, in around 2011, um, I was talking to these homeowners who were the first black families on their block. And they talk about moving to the neighborhood, you know, being able to invest in a home for the first time, being able to move to, to a neighborhood that had restaurants and delis. And there were, there were, because it was a Jewish neighborhood, there were a couple of really well-known Jewish delis that, um, that everybody came to the neighborhood for, um, and um, and they sort of saw the neighborhood change quite a bit over the years. And I think and I think there was the racial change, right, which happened as a result of blockbusting. But there were all of these um, concomitant socioeconomic changes that had to do much more with the kinds of changes that, you know, we just talked about happening um, in, in the Baltimore region as a whole and in Rust Belt cities across the, across the Northeast as a whole. Um, which were that Bethlehem still closed and all of those people who had those jobs there and similar kinds of jobs lost those jobs. Um, and so the neighborhood really, really changed quite quickly. And of course, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you have Vietnam, you have the crack epidemic, you have heroin coming in, you have a, a very aging housing stock, which you know, the people who left that neighborhood and sold those homes hadn't necessarily kept them up and didn't necessarily sell them in great condition. So long story short, you see um, a tremendous financial burden in the form of an aging housing stock being left on the shoulders of these of these newer black home buyers. Um, and you see a drug, drug epidemic um, and, a, and a lot of changes um, happening in the neighborhood. So by the time I got there in the 2000s, right, these homeowners can tell me this story of moving in and having these hopes and dreams. And then they can also tell me about how afraid they are that their housing values are going to drop even further um, because they see renters coming in. And in particular, they see 
people who they think are voucher holders coming in. And this is where you see a lot of a lot of stigma around the program where people would say, oh, well, I know that that's a voucher holder because they have a fancy car and they've got kids toys on the lawn and, you know, poor people with fancy cars, they have vouchers, which of course is, is not always true, but, um, but that was sort of the perception that went along with it. And the fear was, um, and, and I think we can all understand where this fear comes from when you have this group of people who have lost so much, right. And they've seen their, housing values stagnate or in some cases go down over the last several decades, um, they're afraid of any new change that comes to the neighborhood. And they're especially afraid of stigmatized, um, you know, housing programs that that they think might further um, further push down the values of their homes. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, that that translated into a very particular set of social dynamics that I that I talk about later in the book. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah thank you it's it's very much parkheit seems like a very much like a microcosm of a lot of these broader you know processes that took place in many other cities just like baltimore and within baltimore kind of created this idea of the inner city uh the feared ghetto yeah Uh, exactly but for the the people and the families that you studied people who have faced housing insecurity and cost uncertain cost burdens over rents and have resorted to an array of survival strategies pretty much their entire lives in most cases. What does finally receiving a housing choice voucher mean for them? As you mentioned earlier, and as you show several times in the book, it can take years to get a voucher. It's a lottery system and most who need it don't end up getting it. So we'll get to we'll get into the challenges next. But uh, first, please tell us about the benefits that low income renters receive from vouchers compared to some of the unassisted renters who you also studied in Park Heights. Yeah, yeah, this is a great question. And I think it's really important because, um, you know, especially for people interested in social outcomes and in any policymaking, right, it's very easy sometimes to focus on the negative aspects of the program. And there are many and we'll get to them. Um, But I I really thought it was important to spend some time talking about um, uh, how much it meant to people to to receive a voucher. Um, and in part, that was informed by the fact that I got to know so many people in the neighborhood over the course of the research that were on the voucher waiting list or should have been on the voucher waiting list, um, but, but didn't have a voucher and really, really suffered um, because of it. 
And, um, you know, so, so you mentioned Vivian earlier, the, the folks like Vivian who received a voucher, it was, it was truly, you know, one of the most transformational moments in her life. Um, a voucher can be worth six or $7,000 a year. Um, it's, it's quite a lot of money and it. And it, like I said, it's not just about paying for rent. It's about creating this sense of stability that allows all these other things to fall into place. So Vivian had been um, living on her, on her sister, sleeping on her sister's couch, um, sort of living a little bit in her house, but spending a lot of time outdoors. And she had previously been homeless. She had been in and out of shelters. Um, And she had, she had um, teenage twin boys who um, had been living elsewhere. And, and when she got the voucher and was able to show that she had this stable home, she was actually able to, to get her kids back and have them come back and live with her, which, as you can imagine, really um, is huge, right? Um, it's, it's just huge to be able to have your family reunited, to be able to provide for your family, um, to be able to keep a, a steady job because you have a place to sleep and shower um, and cook food. And so for Vivian, it was really huge. And, and for many of the people I met, um, you know, it meant that they could um, make different choices about, about groceries and, um, and what kinds of food to buy. And it meant that they weren't sleeping in shelters and that they weren't wondering if, you know, in Vivian's case, if her sister was going to kick her out, right, if they got in an argument. And so it really did provide a tremendous sense of stability. And, and that's in direct counterpoint to the folks who, um, so I met one family who was living in what's called a, a room for rent. And this is, of course, a family who did not have a voucher. Um, and they rented, it was a, a husband, a wife, um, Destiny um, is what she's called in the book. And, and they had two very small children and they all slept in one bedroom together um, in a house that had uh, three or four other adults who were also living in the house. So each adult or couple rented their own, uh, their own bedroom in the house. And, um, and they all shared one bathroom and they all carried their roll of toilet paper every day back and forth to the bathroom. And, um, and, you know, the landlord made a lot more money this way than if he, he had rented out the house to, to just one family. So, um, that was a, you know, a tricky housing situation. And Destiny told me that, um, that her dream was to get a voucher and, and she had been on the list for many years and, um, as far as I know, is still on it. So, um, so that's sort of, you know, one of, one of the counter examples of what things look like when you don't have this kind of housing assistance. Right. So now let's go back to one of the book's central questions, which is why, if voucher holders have choices, do they tend to find housing in similar low-income neighborhoods rather than higher or mixed-income ones? What are some of the challenges then that they face to move to neighborhoods with better resources and greater stability? Right, right. Yeah, so there's sort of a whole a whole gamut of reasons, and um, and there's been you know literature before this book that looks at this too that considers things like social networks, right, and information. So where do people's families live? Where you know if your mom is doing childcare for your kids, you want to live near your mom, and so you're not going to look across on the other side of the city. You're going to look for something close to your family, um, or you may not you may not know about other neighborhoods. You may not know what they're like. You may not know where the grocery stores are. You may not know anyone there and it may seem you know very foreign um and um 
you know, the reasons that I really focused on, I mean, I, I certainly touch on those, but I also talk a lot about, um, about the resistance that families face from landlords themselves. So um, one of the people I talk about is Edie and, and Edie actually grew up in public housing and waited eight or nine years to get her voucher. And when she got it, her big dream was to move to the suburbs. She really wanted to live somewhere with lots of trees. And she, unlike many voucher holders had a car. And so it was feasible for her um, to live out in a place that didn't have, you know, that is less uh, less densely populated and didn't have public transportation. And um, and so she went out and sort of looked up a bunch of homes and had a whole strategy about, about how to approach it. But um, all of the landlords that she talked to basically just said, well, we don't accept vouchers here. And um, that's quite common. And, and there, there is currently a law in Maryland that um, in theory prevents uh, landlords from doing that, um, but it was not in existence at the time that I was doing this research. And in most places across the country, in most cities and states, there are not laws that prevent landlords from discriminating based on what's called source of income. So in other words, if you pay your rent um, with a voucher instead of with your, uh, with your paycheck, right, um, that's your source of income. And so, um, so... So one of the big reasons why uh, people don't end up where they might like to end up um, really does have to do with uh, direct discrimination from landlords. And, and that may be discrimination related to the voucher program. At times, it's also racial discrimination. In Baltimore, the voucher program um, is 94% Black. And so um, landlords often sort of conflate the two. And if, and if they... Uh, you know, like many cities, it's a highly segregated city. And, um, and so landlords will say, oh, well, you know, it's not me. It's not that I'm racist, but, uh, you know, the neighbors would never, would never stand for this. The neighbors would move out if, if I placed a, a black tenant or a voucher holder in this property. Um, in other cases, the landlords are directly racist themselves. So you, you certainly see some of both. But I think that one of the really under-examined reasons for why people end up where they do has to do um, with this discrimination and with this stigma that that surrounds the program. So we see that something like 30% of voucher holders in, in certain housing markets um, are just unable to lease up. They end up giving their vouchers back. Um, and, I, and I think that much of this does have to do with um, landlord discrimination. Yeah, now your project also identifies an actor in this story who a lot of scholars and policymakers don't focus on very often, and that's landlords. And this is a, a really novel, wonderful contribution stemming from your approach of conducting an ethnography of a policy and not just of a population. Mm. Uh, now, you show here how, you know, since the, the Housing Choice Voucher Program relies on the private market to house the poor, landlords are, are really integral to how, to whether, and to where voucher holders get housing. So what are their motivations for having voucher holders as tenants and what sort of tactics do they use to try to match them to certain housing types that they own? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I do spend a lot of, a lot of time on landlords and I think, um, 
you know, we we've thought a bit, we're starting to think a little bit about landlords and their role um, in eviction, right? And sort of taking tenants out of property, uh, out of homes. Um, but we haven't focused as much on on this role as you as you say that landlords play in really making these key decisions about where people do end up. Um, and um, and in doing so, I, yeah, I do think it's really important to think about landlords' motivations themselves. What why would they want to participate in a program like this and, and why wouldn't they? Um, and so basically what I find in Park Heights, and again, Park Heights is a, is a very poor neighborhood. It's fairly disadvantaged. The rents are very low um, compared to even other areas in the city. Um, and so when you take a neighborhood like this, and we can call it, um, for, for point of contrast, I'll, I'll call it a disadvantaged neighborhood, right, as, a, as compared to a more advantaged or affluent neighborhood, in disadvantaged neighborhoods, if you think about um, the sort of landscape that the landlord is facing, right? The landlord has however many properties he or she has, right? And when he is able to rent that property, he knows that that tenant's going to be fairly poor because that's what the demographic is in this neighborhood. And he knows that that tenant um, not only is poor, but may have a very volatile income, right? May not have a regular job or maybe getting, you know, day jobs here and there. And so there's sort of a high probability on any given month that that rent is going to be late or that rent is not going to come at all. And so renting when you have properties in these types of neighborhoods is sort of risky for landlords and, um, um, and they know this, right? And so what the voucher program offers in a neighborhood like Park Heights, if you can get a voucher holder into that property by passing an inspection, by advertising that property on a place like gosection8.com where the housing authority sends um, both, both landlords and tenants, um, if you can get a voucher holder into that property, most of their rent is going to be paid every month on time direct deposit from the housing authority. So if that if if you're getting $750 from the housing authority and the tenant's portion is $50, whether or not the the tenant pays their $50, you're getting your 750. Um, as compared to a market tenant who you don't know if you're going to get the 800 at all. Um, so in this type of neighborhood, the voucher program sort of offers a more reliable way of getting paid every month. Now, on top of that, it turns out that in some cases, it's not just that it's a reliable payment, that payment may actually be more than you could get um, on the private market. So, um, so I found that, you know, there were certain properties that went for $200, $300 more a month when they were rented through the voucher program than through the private market. And that's really because the rent ceilings, the payment standards that um, the housing authority uses to set rents, they're based on rents for the entire metropolitan area, not just for a poor neighborhood like Park Heights, but for all of Baltimore and for many of the surrounding regions in Baltimore um, in some of the wealthiest county, some of the wealthiest counties in Maryland, right? Um, and, and Maryland is one of the richest states in the country. So, so you're talking about averaging rents across a very wide geographic area, um, which sort of it pushes the price ceiling up relative to what the market rates really are in a neighborhood like Park Heights. So we're talking about financial incentives in that rent is more reliable and that landlords are sometimes receiving a premium above and beyond what they could rent the property for in uh in the private market um so that's one of the 
biggest motivations that landlords have to rent through the voucher program in a neighborhood like Park Heights. That being said, I think it's really important to think about the broader context too. So if we think about disadvantaged neighborhoods like Park Heights, we also have to think about more advantaged neighborhoods in Baltimore. Those might be neighborhoods like Roland Park, where there are actually very few rentals. It's mostly homeowners, it's mostly white, um, and it's fairly affluent. Um, Or you could think about Canton, which is um, more of a working class neighborhood, but, uh, but much wealthier than Park Heights and also much whiter. Um, and so if you think about some of these other kinds of neighborhoods where landlords might have properties, there it's the opposite. They don't have an incentive to rent through the voucher program. They have an incentive to exclude from the voucher program, uh, tenants from the voucher program, because if you think about their landscape and what they're looking at, when a voucher program, when a voucher tenant knocks on their door and says, hey, I'd like to rent your property, they say, well, I've got 10 people in line who are market rate tenants who have reliable jobs and who I know are going to pay their rent every month. Why would I take this voucher tenant that is so stigmatized, right? Um, when I when I have a reliable tenant that I could that I could take um, who doesn't have this particular stigma associated with them. So um, when you think about the advantage for landlords in neighborhoods like Park Heights, you also have to think about what landlords perceive as a disadvantage um, in neighborhoods like Canton or, or Rome Park or Fed Hill. Um, and so you, so if you sort of think about that across the city, what you see is that landlords um, with properties in poor neighborhoods have, a, have an incentive to accept voucher holders and then landlords in more advantaged neighborhoods have a disincentive. Um, and what that really means, of course, is that you get this sorting process where it's hard for, for voucher tenants to rent in white, affluent, or integrated neighborhoods. Um, and it's it's much easier for them to find homes in places like Park Heights. And of course, this, this affects where people end up because um, you're a voucher holder, you have 60 to 90 days to use that voucher before, um, before you have to turn it back to the housing authority. You're not going to waste your time trying to rent in a neighborhood where you think or know you're going to be discriminated against. Or maybe you try it once and then you say, okay, I've got a month left. I better go find someplace in a neighborhood where I know they're going to accept me. So it, it really does contribute um, and shape uh, where people end up. Yeah, thank you. So then there's another set of neighborhood actors who we don't often hear much about when we think of the experiences of low-income renters, and that's the receiving community or the existing residents who you talked about a little bit earlier when you were telling us about the history of Park Heights. Now, you found how these folks tried to really distinguish themselves from newer tenants, uh, especially those who they perceived to be voucher holders, and that's whether they were or not. Many of them are not very good at uh, really determining who is and who is not a voucher holder. Uh, But they still, nonetheless, made moral judgments against them and excluded them from community memberships and activities. And you show how this is significant because it has consequences for voucher holders who struggle to become integrated into and to benefit from what the neighborhood has to offer, which is relatively little, but still is very important for their well-being. So tell us how these social relations between existing longtime residents and new renters form and how they're shaped? 
Yeah, that's right. And I think I think the underlying theory here that's really important is that there is, is this idea, whether implicit or explicit, um, that moving near to higher income neighbors is somehow good for people, right? And and certainly this is not unrelated to the kinds of theories that talked about the dangers of concentrated poverty that public housing presented, right? The sort of implicit idea there is that, oh, if you move near to people who have jobs and can afford their homes and um, sort of play nice in the neighborhood, that that will convey some kind of social capital to you, right? That they might be able to connect you to a job or that they might help you learn something about the neighborhood. What day is trash collected? Where can you go? Um, What day does the farmer's market open? Where can you go to get a a particular benefit like a free phone that, you know, that the neighborhood association might be offering people, right? All kinds of information and resources that your neighbors can impart to you. And certainly that's sort of the basic premise of social capital theory more broadly, right, is that being around people with resources might allow you to access those resources. And so I think when you apply that specifically to the voucher program, the problem is, and this is true of social capital more broadly, right, living next to someone with social capital doesn't necessarily allow you access to it. If your status as a voucher holder is highly stigmatized, your neighbor may not be willing to tell you um, where they signed up to get the free phone program or where the health clinic is down the street or what day the neighborhood association meets. They might not want to talk to you. They might actually be outrightly outright hostile to you. Um, and so that was one of the things that I really wanted to look at. And as I started to talk about a little bit before, um, Indeed, uh, even though there isn't an element of um, racial difference here, it's not as if this is a white neighborhood with black voucher holders coming in or vice versa, um, you still see a ton of of stigma just around the program itself. And and as you mentioned, you see these um, older homeowners sort of making all kinds of assumptions about who is is a voucher holder, who isn't a voucher holder, um, and making a lot of moral judgments about um, about folks' behaviors, whether it comes to how often they mow their lawn or um, whether they're barbecuing in front or in back or um, whether they take their trash out on the right day. Um, and so and so what you see is that that transmission of social capital isn't really happening in the way that we might hope that it would. Um, and 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 I would I would take it a step further too to say that it's not just about the individual kinds of assumptions and prejudice and stigma that homeowners are making about renters, whether or not they are voucher holders, but it's also really evident in um, in the community organizations. So you've got a community meeting that is ostensibly for everyone but in which the topics that are discussed are things like how to weatherize your home or how to set up security cameras to do crime prevention. And these are things that most renters are not weather stripping their windows and setting up crime, you know, um, surveillance cameras, right? These are things that homeowners do. And so, um, and so you really see that even the organizations in the neighborhood that could cater to both populations end up sort of gearing towards one population or another, which sort of keeps everyone um, 
separate, um, even in a moment when they could be coming together to actually get to know each other and, and sort of trade, trade information sets and, and resources. So, um, so I, I do note that dynamic and I, and I really, I really also want to sort of point again to the history of this neighborhood and the fact that, um, we do need to understand that animosity in the context of the risk and the loss that this homeowning population has experienced, right? A group of people who um, were able to, to buy homes in this neighborhood when they weren't able to buy homes anywhere else previously, right? Who saw their home values plummet and who now are sort of extra protective of what little they have left. And I say that only because I think both the homeowners and the renters are sort of suffering in their own ways. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, it leads to a little bit less community interaction and a little bit less transmission of social capital than we would otherwise see. But I think we also need to take into account the organizational context that allows that to happen. In other words, not just sort of blaming the individuals in this really tough situation, but sort of looking at what we could do on a larger level by funding different community groups or funding events um, in the neighborhood that might sort of bring these two populations together. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how these intra-racial divisions raise tensions and end up compounding disadvantages, even in these under-resourced neighborhoods uh, right. between these 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 different but related populations. Uh, so now your work raises a lot of policy implications and you see the voucher program as a step in the right direction, but one in need of fixing and strengthening. So based on your findings and your arguments, what are that you, what, what do you see as the program's key strengths and what would you say are the most needed reforms, both within and outside of, but in conjunction with this program to address the the ongoing, long-standing crisis of housing instability and uncertainty in the U.S.? Yeah, this is, this is really important and something I sort of thought a lot about how to frame right so that it didn't sort of get mis, misunderstood. And I think, I think the first thing, and, and it, again, it helps to separate out those two separate goals that I talked about when we think about that first goal of the voucher program as an anti-poverty tool, as a way to promote housing stability, right? For the people who get the voucher and, and can use the voucher, it works really, really well, right? It's really quite transformational. But um, with those two caveats, not everybody who needs it gets it, and not everybody who gets it finds a way to use it. Um, and so I think there are a number of... Um, of interventions that we can talk about that address those two things and then also address that second goal, which is not everybody who gets it and finds a way to use it is able to use it in the place that they want to or in the place that they could use it that, you know, might might have a lot of benefits for them. Um, and of course, now we know much more than we did before based on, you know, folks like Raj Chetty and, and his work about mobility and about the tremendous benefits that come from living in neighborhoods um, that, uh, that have certain, certain kinds of resources. 
So um, on the first part, on the part where never, not everybody who gets it needs it, I think the most obvious thing to say is the voucher program should be expanded to everyone who needs it. And interestingly, this is something Biden talked about in his original housing plan before he was elected. We haven't heard as much about it um, since he's become president. We have heard talk of some smaller expansions, some additional vouchers here and there, um, which is fantastic. Um, I very much hope that 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 he that he meant that in his plan when he said it and that he will find a way to do it because I do think that the voucher program is offers just a tremendously flexible tool to offer people um, the, the ability to afford their homes, the ability to make real decisions about where they want to live. Um, but I also will say that I don't think we should expand it without introducing some of these tweaks and fixes that I'll talk about in a minute. I think that expanding it without changing some of these details could really exacerbate inequality um, in ways that would be quite detrimental. So first expansion Second, um, thinking about ways of um, allowing the program to operate, um, producing more equitable results. And um, when we think about various kinds of mobility programs that exist around the country, so these are special voucher programs, um, not unlike MTO, although MTO was an experiment, not a mobility program. But Baltimore, for example, has the Baltimore Regional Housing uh, Mobility Program that, um, and, and there's one in Texas, and there's, you know, there's many across the country. And, and these programs offer us a lot of hints about what kinds of tweaks we can make to the program that um, allow people to make more choices. Um, so for example, um, counseling, and by counseling, I really just mean information, right? Caseworkers who are assigned um, to each voucher holding family that help people understand what their options are, what the possible neighborhoods and homes are that they could live in, um, and how they could sort of, um, how they could make it work to live in a new neighborhood, what kinds of public transportation exists, what kinds of jobs are there, and really just sort of helping people expand the menu of options so that they're not just thinking about the places that they already know. And apparently this alone, this information counseling, can, can be tremendously effective. Um, another really important policy tool is um, source of income discrimination protection. So I talked about source of income as the laws basically that say landlords can't turn a voucher holder down based solely on the fact that they're paying their rent with a voucher. And the evidence on SOI laws shows that they work. They are not a cure-all. They, they don't change everything. There are lots of ways for landlords to get around source of income protection laws, um, but they do move the needle and they do help. And it's hard to imagine a federal program that funded vouchers for everyone who needed them without thinking about outlawing direct discrimination towards voucher holders, right? In much the way that gender and race and religious background are protected classes, um, it would make sense, I think, for voucher status to also be a protected class in that way. Um, but that's sort of right, the stick and the carrot is something called small area FMR. 
And this is a complicated policy, but in essence, what it does is it calibrates those rent ceilings that I talked about at a more local level so that we're not overpaying landlords in neighborhoods like Park Heights and we're not underpaying them in in neighborhoods like Canton or, or Roman Park, right? In other words, we're, we're calibrating the amount that the voucher is worth more closely to the neighborhood that the voucher holder wants to rent in, which makes the voucher more competitive compared to the market renter. Um, and, and this kind of policy has been um, rolled out in a number of cities across the country as of 2018. And the, the preliminary studies on it show that it, it really does help to open up opportunities for voucher holders um, in more in more affluent neighborhoods and sort of allow them um, a greater choice set. And then again, also it eliminates that sort of perverse incentive that landlords have to attract and target and market their properties in disadvantaged neighborhoods to voucher holders. So I think that's really important. Um, and then lastly, there are some basic forms of assistance that I think we could offer, like security deposit assistance or transportation assistance. These are things, again, that um, put the choice in the hands of the voucher holder instead of the landlord. And these come directly out of my research with landlords, because, of course, what I found is that landlords use things like security deposits, um, like waiving a security deposit or um, transportation offering a uh, voucher holder a ride um, to go see a, a vacant property. Um, they use these offers as a way to entice families who have very few options, who don't have enough money to come up with a security deposit, who don't have a car to go around and visit lots of apartments or homes. They use these as a way to entice families into, into properties located in disadvantaged neighborhoods. And so by providing some of these things directly to families, it sort of prevents the landlord from from offering those incentives and I think could could allow the family to make a little bit more of a real choice on their own. Yeah, certainly such a large problem demands a, a multi-pronged set of efforts. So thank you for these uh, ideas based on your work. So yeah. Reba, you've been very generous with your time, uh, but before we finish, and I recognize this is a bit of a mean question because you just finished a book and now I'm asking you what's next. Um, <laughs> but please tell us what you're working on now and uh, what we can expect to see from you in print in the future. Yeah, so actually the big project I'm working on now is very much related to this, so it may be interesting to listeners. Um, over the past few years, as I've been finishing up this book, I've also been starting research on another project, um, and it's really specifically about landlords. So it, it very much comes out of what I learned in Park Heights and in Baltimore and tries to think about, okay, if we look across um, a slightly larger set of cities, how can we understand more broadly how, how landlords participate in this program um, and really what role they play in the lives um, of the poor. So it is a mixed method study. Um, there's definitely a huge qualitative component. Um, my my co-author and I, or collaborator and I, Phil Garbodin, have about 160 landlords in four different cities. So we've got Baltimore, which um, folks know about now. Uh, and we've also done research in Dallas and Cleveland and then in, in Washington, D.C., where I am now. So a very different set of housing markets, um, especially once we added Washington, D.C., which is uh, the highest cost neighborhood, uh, highest cost city, um, the highest housing market. 
um, and the, the most gentrification, certainly, of all of the cities. Um, and uh, then we've also got an administrative data set that, that includes all of the landlords renting through the voucher program and all of the families and properties included in it in all four of those cities. So, um, so, so we want to do something pretty big where we, where we really think about the, the role that landlords play in the lives of poor renters, how they shape housing markets, how they shape housing choices, um, and how the voucher program sort of comes, comes in and out of the lives of poor families. Cool. Thank you for telling us about that and best of luck with it. And hopefully yeah. when that book is out, you'll, you'll come back and uh i would love to <laughs> excellent well thank you very much Eva. i appreciate the time thank you have a good one lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.